Welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, of course. I am your host, Tyler Crawley. I, I feel like Austin Powers. Allow myself to introduce myself. I am Tyler Crawley here, the host of this podcast. So I don't know what I was thinking yesterday. Speaking of funny things, I don't know what I was thinking about yesterday when I decided to change the format of the show. It's it's hit or miss, man. When you're doing something new, and I know I've been doing, I'm almost 100 episodes in. I'm very proud of myself that I've stuck through this so far. But I'm always changing. You're always trying to, you know, if, if, if you assume that what you're doing is perfect, you're probably getting ready to fail. It's like you always want to be improving. You always want to be changing. And so I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put headlines first and then I'll get to the big story. I mean, that's like broadcasting 101. I just had a complete brain fart. There's no other way to word it. I mean, it's you always start with the big story. You got to hook the audience. And so I apologize for my stupidity. I mean, sometimes a headline can be like the big hook. Sometimes, but that's not normally the case. It's usually something that I, I get into detail in that we're going to talk about in detail, not only here, but of course in the companion newsletter, which has everything we talk about here in the show and more. So we're going to go back to the, the way it was. All right. I apologize for that. And we're going to start with the big story. And that is the first housing report of the month. It's always kind of at the start of the month, and it's always the CoreLogic Home Price Index. And it showed things holding steady. No movement up, no movement down. Holding steady at 18%. Once again, this is the CoreLogic Home Price Index year-over-year appreciation, 18%, which is the third month in a row it's been pretty much at 18%. So in August, it was at 18.1%, September 18, and now here in October at 18% again. So technically, it's somewhat fallen from its high, but statistically, not really. Now, what was interesting was month over month, home prices did increase 1.3%, which was up from the 1.1% that we had seen in August. So a little bit of forward momentum with regards to appreciation. And remember that this 18% is the highest annual growth that they have ever seen since they started keeping this stat back in 1976. Now, looking at the crystal ball, always important thing to do. What's going to be happening next month? What's going to be happening a year from now? CoreLogic is arguing that we are going to see only 2.5% growth year over year in October, 2022. So home prices are only going to move up 2.5%. Now they are predicting a month over month uh, appreciation of 0.2% in November of 2021. I'm not sure the last time that was actually right. I'm pretty sure they've been predicting under 1% growth all year. And I'm not sure they've hit it once. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, The start of the next year, when we get the November data. Now, looking at the states, Arizona, as always, on top, it continues to lead the country with 28.8% year-over-year growth, followed closely by Idaho at 28.7%. Idaho's, we've seen Idaho's name before pop up. 
And it's like I said, it's kind of funny to see Idaho uh, on any ranking being that close to number one. <laughs> I'm not taking shots at Idaho. I'm just I'm just pointing out the reality of the situation. Uh, Utah, Florida, Nevada, and Montana were all at around 24 percent in November. Frank Martell, president and CEO of CoreLogic, predicts a slight dip during the holidays, but demand he says will remain strong, saying. In a press release, quote, news how new household formation, investor purchases and pandemic related factors are driving demand for the limited supply of available for sale homes continue to propel the upward spiral of U.S. home prices. However, we expect home price growth to moderate over the next term as many buyers take a break for the holidays. But will they <laughs> normally they'd already be taking a break? And there's no real evidence of that. So we'll see. You know, this is supposed to be a downtime for real estate. And you talk to anyone in real estate and they're going to be like, not really. <laughs> We're not seeing it. So let's see. CoreLogic, I think, does a good job at collecting data, predicting what's going to happen. Eh, they kind of missed the mark, at least in 2021. Now, here's something I'm glad we did not miss the mark on. And that was the debt ceiling we don't have to worry about it at least for, I think, about a year, if I'm doing the math correctly in my head. Democrats and Republicans showed, it's been a while since I've been able to say this, showed that sometimes Congress can still work together and be somewhat bipartisan. Both sides agreed to raise the debt ceiling until after the 2022 midterm, this according to the Washington Post. So how is it going to work? How are they going to raise the debt ceiling? Well, first, Congress would pass a measure that allows Democrats to raise the debt ceiling just once using a simple majority in the Senate. At least 10 Republicans would have to support that measure for it to prevail. Then Democrats alone could forge ahead with the actual increase to the debt ceiling, which GOP lawmakers could oppose without risking an economic crisis. And you got to love the way Washington works. So it's like, we're not going to vote for the debt ceiling raise. But we will vote to allow you to vote for the debt ceiling raise. As long as our name is not on the actual vote that raises the debt ceiling, we are good to go. Senator Chuck Schumer told the Washington Post that he, quote, feels very good about where we're headed. And Senator John Corrin told the Post to have Democrats raise the debt ceiling and be held politically accountable for racking up more debt is my goal. And this helps us accomplish that. So once again, they're voting to raise the debt ceiling, but they're not actually voting to raise the debt ceiling. This is important, of course, because if the United States government did not raise the debt ceiling and we could not make our uh, interest payments, or any payments for that matter, we ran out of money and therefore defaulted, that would be bad. That would be a bad thing for the United States economy. It's never happened. And it probably would take a lot longer than you know many of the doomsdayers would like to argue there. Oh, it would happen in three or four days. I mean, there's emergency measures they can take, uh, they can engage in, which will somewhat keep that moving forward. I remember one time I did an interview with a congressman who shall remain nameless for a lot of reasons, but he once told me that the United States could um, never raise the debt ceiling, that they could just, they would never go, they would never default, they would never go bankrupt. It was this like crazy argument. In fact, it was the first interview I ever did on the radio that went kind of viral, where someone picked it up on social media and I got a bunch of people all over the country that listened to 
my little radio show in Wilmington, North Carolina. But I just remember at the time I was still somewhat young and I was like, oh, wow, okay. And I was actually buying into that idea that we never have to raise the debt ceiling. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And luckily now I'm, I'm much older and much wiser and know how stupid of an argument that is. And speaking of things that are bad, this is a little disconcerting. The New York Times reported yesterday that many low-income Americans are finding their savings dwindling or even depleted. And for them, the economic recovery is looking less buoyant. That's according to Talman Joseph Smith as I mentioned, over at the New York Times. Now, the reason that many people's savings accounts were as flush as they were, well, that was thanks to the infusions of cash the government provided that warded off an economic calamity for millions of households. And millions of those households were now sitting or had been sitting on bigger bank balances than even before the pandemic. And this propelled consumer spending, also helped pay off debt, and at times, reduce the urgency of job hunts. Now, this is coming to an end. According to Moody's Analytics, an economic research firm, these excess savings among many working and middle-class households would be exhausted as soon as early next year, not only reducing their financial cushion, but also potentially affecting the economy since consumer spending is such a large share of activity. So there's two ways to look at this. And I mean, they're both correct. So before Thanksgiving, I think it was a couple weeks before Thanksgiving, everyone was talking about inflation and how it was going to impact many families Thanksgiving. And there was this clip that was making the rounds on social media by Stephanie Rule. I, I used to watch her at Bloomberg. She was on Bloomberg. She, I think she used to do derivatives trading or options trading or something. She's smart. She's what she's talking about. She definitely knows finance. And she was on MSNBC. She now works for NBC. I think she has a show on MSNBC. And she was saying that, hey, listen, you know, higher prices are bad, but the dirty little secret is that everyone has all this money in savings. And so they can use those savings to pay more for the products that they were going to buy anyway that are now more expensive and they're not getting a raise at work. And everyone kind of clowned on her pointing out that, well, yeah, that can only last for so long because then your savings gets depleted. And then what do you do? And so that's kind of the situation that we are looking at. So what will happen is that people will not be able to buy as much. And so demand will drop. And the hope is that that would then have a down or would put downward pressure on prices and would slow inflation. Now, the problem is the prices are already elevated. So maybe they don't go any higher, but it's unlikely that they're going to reverse. I mean, it's not likely. I mean, I guess it could happen. So true, we've at least stopped inflation, but what do you do about those higher prices and that gap between what something costs and what someone's getting paid versus what it used to cost. And so people are going to make both arguments here and say, oh, well, hey, you know, people don't have less money. So now we're going to see demand drop and that'll be good for, you know, inflation. And it's like, okay, yeah, but what do we do about the people who are tipping into their savings? Now their savings is gone and the prices have stopped going up, but they're now staying where they are. And so, yeah, this could definitely be a major problem. Uh, for consumer spending, especially among middle class and working class households. And we'll see what the impact of that will be going forward. Hopefully, they're going to continue to see wage growth while inflation somewhat kind of hopefully stagnates. That's, that's I think that's what a, most economists 
would hope for. All right, before we go to time, I did want to give you a couple headlines. See, now we're going to get into the headlines here. The Chinese government is making moves to backstop Evergrande, the embattled Chinese real estate company. The New York Times reported yesterday that Evergrande said officials from several state-backed institutions had joined a risk committee that would help the company restructure itself. The committee led by Evergrande's founder will play an important role in mitigating and eliminating future risk, said a filing, uh, I should say, early Tuesday. Now, I have to say this was kind of inevitable because, I mean, if you know anything about China and Xi Jinping, there's no way he's going to allow one company to ruin the reputation of China. Now, I'd probably be worried if I was an Evergrande executive because of what happens to people over there who uh, embarrass Xi Jinping and or China, which I know is kind of one and the same. So I'm sure they're going to be watching their back. But um, for the most part, I don't think Xi Jinping is going to allow some huge economic calamity that's going to hurt the image of China around the world. Uh, Now, speaking of bad news, we have more bad news for a company called Better.com. They're a real estate startup. I I know they do mortgages. I think they do some other things in real estate. And man, they've had two days of bad headlines. So yesterday, uh, they announced they're pushing back its public listing through a merger with a blank check firm. This according to Bloomberg. The company is now seeking new regulatory approval after revising the terms of the merger. A special purpose acquisition company said one of the people who asked not to be identified discussing the private information. This will push back the closing of the transaction uh, until the fourth quarter. This was the second bad headline in as many days for the startup. On Monday, the chief executive officer, Vishal Garg, fired 900 employees in the U.S. and India over Zoom. This got a lot of attention, a lot of bad headlines, a lot of bad PR, and here they are once again with another bad headline. Just two days, two days? That's how quick things can happen when it comes to negative PR. All right, speaking of negative PR, we got to go. We're out of time. I know, that's negative. You want to hear more, but that's it. That's all we got for today. I will see you guys back here Thursday morning for another edition, another great edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. You guys enjoy your Wednesday. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait. Wait.